Streaming live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, a place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island. I'm excited to host the first new Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto, under the treaty of a dish with one spoon, and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I'm your host and artistic director, Julie Negum, and this is my final episode for season one of Belonging to Place, Moving Through Water. Beginning at the heart of Turtle Island and then traveling across the Pacific Ocean to understand the way in which people navigate through space, exploring ideas of displacement and disruption through the social, cultural, and architectural evolution of cities. We get to hear from some incredible artists and critical thinkers, Dr. Negon Sinclair, Sun K. Kwan, Natalie Robinson, and Jean Marshall. Water is life, and charting new routes leading to distinctive paths, water and land bind us. The space between us, or the VA, represents a space where identity can be mapped and defines us and makes us part of the unity that is all. Water is imagined as a gateway to meeting new people, land, flora and fauna. Under the constellations of the night sky, we can imagine a dreamlike state that could guide us to different islands across the archipelago. I am firmly grounded within the prairie landscape, the boreal forests, marshlands, and inland lakes that imitate the never-ending ocean skyline that dominates the Pacific. Manitoba, or Manitoba, is a powerful place originating from Cree words Manitou, Great Spirit, and Wapau, Sacred Water. The Great Spirit echoes through the meaning of this place where the Creator sat at the rock petroforms of Manitou Api, which is a powerful place of healing and knowledge. Manitoba is the heart of Turtle Island because it is the chosen location of where the Creator sat. This magnetic force can be felt when you're moving through our river and lake systems. And I'm so excited to have one of my favorite critical thinkers, Nigon, who shed some light on why Manitoba is a special place. Manitoba is a place that's very old. It's arguably one of the oldest spaces in Turtle Island because in our creation stories, which are the stories that talk about this place, it talks about this place as being the place where Earth was recreated in our creation story. So the story of our creation here is the story of Winneboju going down in the Great Lake during the flood of the earth, the remaking of the earth, and sending down the muskrat to go and collect the earth that could be used to recreate the land for everyone to stand on. And it's that story, the way the story goes is it talks about the muskrat traveling to the deepest and darkest parts of that space and that, that ocean. And so if you look at the historical scientific record, Manitoba was once covered by a great ocean, a great lake called Lake Agassiz, and, uh, which was glacier that melted and carved out the landscape and see the rivers and the lakes for what it is today. But at the very bottom of that basin is the center of Manitoba. It's the bottom of Lake Winnipeg because Lake Winnipeg is the bottom of a great watershed, a great space in which it's sort of like a massive funnel system where everything in the watershed flows into Lake Winnipeg. Everything flows into that space and it goes from Lake Winnipeg and flows into the Hudson Bay. And so so if anywhere, that place where the muskrat traveled to recreate the land for everyone to stand on, it would be this place. It would be uh, Manitoba. 
because this place is the place in which life was recreated after the Great Flood. And uh, that's honored, by the way, in a painting by Daphne Ojig in the Manitoba Museum, who did it for the Manitoba Centennial, the 100 years of Manitoba's anniversary, to remind Manitobans of the story of this place, the scientific story of this place, the cultural story of this place, and the physical geographical story of this place, which is that we, in many ways, are part of the birth of Turtle Island, because when Winnebogeu placed that piece of earth on the back of a turtle and traveled across the water to create the land for everyone to stand on. That this is what emerged, which which was this place, you know, now known as North America. And so in many ways, this is the place that started it all. You know, this is the place that where life comes from. And, and embedded within the name of this place, Manitowobble, there's two names to this place, Manitowobble and Manitowapi. And so Manitowobble, it talks about the sound that the water makes off the shores in the Narrows. And it uh, just talks about those very sacred sounds that go off those crashing waves. And then the other sound, uh, Manitoapi, the other name for this place, refers to the teachings that are placed down in the petroforms in the white shell. And so when you bring those two things together, they first tell you that the most indigenous things possible happens here, which is two names for the same place. There's nothing more indigenous than that, because it talks about complexity and diversity and the fact that we can have two, tr two truths existing at the same time. But it also talks about the power of the earth, like the life comes from the water, it comes from the sounds from the water. It also comes from the teachings that are placed on the earth. So this place, Manitowobo, is very old. It talks about the ecology, but it talks about sort of a method. It's kind of like a template, what I think is for the rest of North America. And what happens here often is what sort of ripples out with the waves that begin in this place and ripples out to the rest of creation and uh, influences. And, you know, it's true, you know, the may some many of the major artists come from this place, voices, songs, histories come from this place. Today, we are the largest indigenous population, urban population, and at times rural population, the largest provincial proportional population. We do things here in Manitoba that are remarkable and in many ways are the forerunners for ideas everywhere else. And, and it's not that other places don't do important things. Of course they do. But here in Manitoba, in um, you know, we are the place in which treaty is formed. The first treaties of this country were formed. We're the place in which the first armed standoff started off here in Manitoba against the Canadian government, uh, against colonialism and dispossession. Uh, we're also the place in which today you can see a, a continual re-engagement and revitalization and renewal of our traditions and places like our lodges and our political spaces and it's a pretty dynamic amazing place and that that history continues here now with creativity and innovation with the people in this place don't stop mm, i just get chills when i hear that story it makes me smile thinking about the life force in this beautiful territory it's also a hundred percent true that there is something special that is happening here and then pulsing out to the rest of the islands. I think many people forget that New York is also an island and of course the hub of artistic activity. I'm thrilled to have Sun Kei Kwan for Nui and her incredible abstracted masking tape installations. To further connect us to water, Sun will tell us a little bit about her new work she's making for the Venice Finale for spring 2022. My continued interest in the theme of time and space is apparent in few series of projects. One of my representative works, space drawing, is ephemeral large-scale drawings with masking tape directly on site. These size-specific series drawings are born through the communion between the material 
and spiritual, wherein my own self is constantly reflected, emptying itself. My interest in the invisible quality of space and mind in time continues on my other visual experiments. Following that same lines is pen and ink drawing paper series in search and visualize images in my unconsciousness to see the influence and interact with my consciousness and the visual results. Times Composed is collage drawing series as life records from decades of my drawing diaries on paper. I researched on these to collect and recreate from resembled visual languages in similar life experience that I had and the emotion. As extension, a trace of intimate conversation between the consciousness and unconsciousness, sculptural drawing series that I started with drawing in the air with recapture tape becomes three-dimensional forms as a result of accumulated layers of time. I've been working on my first open-air space drawing during pandemic. Around this time last year, it was really quiet in Manhattan because of the lockdown. And for the first time, I realized this vibrant city actually is an island. And I started recording my each day as my drawing diary on paper in this quarantine island. Drawing diary series I started since 1994 has often become a bigger project later on. And this time, I record my previous drawing from other challenging time I named Eagle and I recreate this into a rolled form with a stainless steel entitled A Tale of an Eagle. And this will present at St. Clemente Palace uh, Kempinski for the Venice Biennale this year. Me and the Nibelange Blanche team has started discuss the possibility wrapping the Toronto Performing Arts Center with my space drawing. This will be part of my space drawing series my impromptu drawing process in response to specific site has strong performance aspect. The process of the drawing directly on site signifies my effort to unite myself with the medium as it weaves its way unhindered through varied visual and environmental spaces as myself transferred into the drawing lines orchestrates the dynamism of manifold energies generated between the architecture's idiosyncrasy and its surroundings. Structural tensions will be liberated into a new pictorial reality where the viewers are invited as they step into these three-dimensional drawings. Their visual perception and awareness of environment will be extended to another dimension of time and space when is the moment this work will be completed. At the close of an exhibition, uh, the space once again becomes blank as the black tape of the drawings uh, is pulled off the wall and drawn out. Uh, this process of emptying the space is metaphor for the ephemeral nature of life, yet the drawing leaves as an imprint, leave the space forever altered. I'm not interested in creating representational imageries. Most of the time, they are intuitive and abstract with different movement, speed, and weight. But the viewers could take various impressions and interpretation through their own experiences. <laughs> I'm just jacked that I'm gonna get to witness Sun's work in Venice, in the city that floats on water with all the canals running through the cityscape and the rising water on the cobblestone with the shifting tides. Water is a route to different landscapes and each time I travel, I find myself drawn back to all the exceptional creatives in the Pacific. We get the opportunity to connect with Natalie, whose entire art practice and scholarship revolves around water. Hikurangi is the mountain, Waipu is the river, 
Kaupumura is the forest, Ngātipro is the tribe. Ko pōhautia te maunga, ko takā te awa, tikapa a hini kōpeka te marae, te whānau a hini ota, te whānau a pōkai nā hapū. I've just outlined who I am in relation to geography. My name is Natalie Robertson and I belong to the tribe Ngātipro. Within that, I am a member of the sub-tribal groups Te Whānau Hiniota, Te Whānau Pōkai. And so that means that we are a people of the Waipu River mouth, our marae, which is our ancestral ground and place to be, both a ritual ceremonial space as well as a place that we use in practice, is situated looking out towards the most easterly point of Te Ika Amawi, the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Te Ika Amawi is a fish. It's a land, we see our land here as being a fish that has been pulled up out of the ocean. And that way of understanding the land shows that we see ourselves as part of a fluid ocean, a fluid space, and on a land that moves, and a land that is still moving. And if you know Aotearoa, you know that we have a lot of earthquakes, you know that we're quite a volatile space, but also that we've also got a huge coastline for a small place. So we're an island in the middle of the sea. So what I've been thinking about with my thesis, which is part practice-based, is how photography can speak into, speak of, and support the river places that flow into our ocean. So in particular, the Waipu River. So I've been trying to situate my practice from thinking about the river mouth speaks. What does the river speak of and to whom? Does the river speak to the creatures who dwell in the river, to the ancestors long dead? Does she speak to the living? And are we listening? So when I think about the river, I think about her, Waipu Kōkahuhua, the Waipu River of many chiefly female leaders. I think about who she is as a being today, and all of the many beings that make up who she is. And I think about the terrible ravages of deforestation on the land and how that's filled the river as an artery with sediment. I think about how that sediment is clogging the gills of the fish that live in the river and how, as a photographer, as an image maker, I can bring some element of storytelling to that that assists those visionaries who are working on the healing of our river. I guess I make photographs that I hope will speak with those visionaries that will provide some record of how the river is at the moment as we move into a time of restoration. And I'm thinking about how the act of photographing also brings attention, brings attention to the things that we that we think about. So I've brought a lot of my time and attention to freshwater springs that are on land adjacent to the river because the river itself is such a huge body with so many complex issues. But I can visualise the restoration of the freshwater springs and the land around them as possible within, I guess, a shorter time frame, if whatever time frame healing takes, right? The Great Lakes are like inland oceans. They have been routes that have been traversed for millennia. And it has been explained that the Great Peninsula or Thunderbird created a large storm 
which severed the Toronto Islands from the mainland. The protector of the people, the Thunderbird, is the enemy of the Mishupishu, the great water panther. But they balance each other out by their powerful presence. These creatures are part of the Anishinaabe relations to place, as they create balance in the cosmos and the three different worlds, the sky, the land, and the underground. These creatures have been part of Lake Ontario and the Great Lakes for thousands of years. Their significance for the Toronto Islands is based on their relationship forged with both Indigenous people and later settlers. This lake has acted as a hub for fishing and trading that spans over thousands of years. The Toronto Islands have been and will always be an important stopping place and a place of healing and spiritual renewal. Jean has been living and working and inspired from Lake Superior, which is one of the five great lakes that carries this history and knowledge. I remember being a little girl and being excited about making all the time, just being around. Actually, I remember being outside all the time with my sister, but being creative was always something that was a part of our life. From making paper bag puppets to just even like things in school, like weaving paper. I think all these little things were always really exciting for me. I grew up surrounded by, by beadwork. My mom taught me how to do beadwork, but she's not really much of an actual beater, but she knows how to do it. So she showed me how to do it, but my aunties actually are really, they're really great. They're great sewers, great leather workers, great bead workers. And so when I was young, there was always, you know, gauntlet mitts, moccasins, beaded items, you know, hair pieces, barrettes and like hair ties, necklaces. There's always all sorts of beadwork around. And I don't think I realized it, but it was having an impact on me uh, subliminally because, you know, I never knew that I would be a beater like I am today. And it and it's what actually sustains my life and allows me to live in a good way is this skill that I that I picked up in my late 20s. My mom actually taught me to do beadwork when I was a teenager and I didn't take to it. I wasn't interested in it at all. But it wasn't until later in life when I needed it, it came to me and it really, really helped me and it continues to help me today. But yeah, so I think like that subliminal, whatever happens, like my sister had said to me at some point, when your children are between the ages of five and eight years old, something's happening there. And whatever it is that they're doing during that time, like the positive things, those are what they end up doing later in life. And I always like asking people that, like, what do you remember from when you were like that age? And oftentimes it actually, how would you say that? It actually, you know, like someone might remember like picking medicines and then they become like a doctor, you know what I mean? Like it's directly related. So I think it's really interesting how you engage your children and how later in life they follow through with that. So for me, like being an artist, I, I think it's so fitting for what I remember, what brought joy for me during my life as a young child. For me, I don't think it's quite trained. I didn't go to school for art, but I did. All of my learning for my sewing and beading has been learned from somebody. It's been from my auntie, my auntie Isabel, seeing the work of my auntie Mary. You know, my auntie Joyce is uh, great at designing patterns. She shared her patterns with me and also, you know, like the designs, the bead designs and also patterns for cutting out beaver hats and mitts and all those sorts of things and moccasins and stuff. They've shared those things with me. So it's, it's schooling, it's education in a different way. 
I think like in terms of color, growing up, the colors were always how I see the beadwork in my family, like all the ladies in my family bead, their beadwork is always like, they'll do like two or three lines for an outline, like in one color, and then they'll fill in with a solid color. So there are these really like vibrant, like kind of traditional beadwork. And I think for me, when I started to do beadwork, I was actually drawing a lot. And I always drew with black on white paper. It's all I ever did. When I doodled in high school and university, it was always black and white, black and white. I never even thought of using color. So then when I was introduced to beadwork later in my 20s, color kind of blew my mind. And I loved it. So if you look at my beadwork, basically it's a punch of colors, right? And I think some people, I've had conversations with people who, you know, we critique each other's beadwork and some people are like, it's too much, like it's too busy. And I'm like, but it's my, it's my voice and my, and my work, right? And some people, they like, a friend of mine does that real traditional style and it, the line work is kind of like, it's just different, but for my beadwork, I like lots of color. So I'll always do like one line, you know, like if you can envision like a, a five petal, a five, like a floral with five petals on it, I'll do the circle with one color and then I'll like fill it in with another color and I'll keep changing the color each time I go around because I just get excited about putting a new color. I can't actually focus on filling the whole circle with one color. That's what's going on with me is I can't actually like focus enough to because I get excited. There's so many colors, right? So then I'll do my, my petals in one color and then I'll fill in with another. So that's kind of how I get so much colors in there. But yeah. Okay, well, first of all, I had no idea what you were talking about, what augmented reality was. I had no idea the ability that what could happen with an image of my beadwork. It was really exciting to see that. I think because I tend to be not very open-minded, I just, I, I do what I do and I don't think about the possibilities. So I really love that about you. you you're like this, you're a big thinker, you know, for you to think to do something like that. I was just so blown away when, when I was sent the image and, and started interacting with it, like just within my home. And I think when I had received the email, I was in town finishing an appointment and I was in my car and I, I had it on the, the pavement of the parking lot and I was just I was just like wow it was really neat and really neat and interesting way for people to see beadwork completely differently when people saw the image they thought that I had a few people message me asking me how I did that how did I create that sculpture on the water is it made out of noodles like did I cut noodles so there was all these like conversations around it and I feel like it was just such a cool extension of my work like that I didn't even do so <laughs> yeah, I really love that. Thank you. We're right on Lake Superior, Gitchigaming. So where the image that was taken is actually right on our, in our front yard. So that's what we see every day. So I think living by the water, we're very grateful for that every day. And it really influences everything about what we do. I mean, first of all, for our well-being, it, it sustains us and it's constantly replenishing us. You know, even with the change of the seasons, like right now, the, the water is just thrashing out there. Like the waves are just huge and it's just, it kind of makes me feel excited. Like I feel excited today because I feel like, you know, things are like really changing. Um, I think the water does that. It kind of talks to you in that way. Yeah.
the water is just so huge. There's, there's just so many things about it, like living right near it. I couldn't imagine. Like sometimes Mick and I talk and we think, you know, like our friends in Toronto or like people who aren't near water, like like I just couldn't imagine. Even when I crossed the river to go into town, like I, you know, Mick and I sometimes think, oh, should we buy a house in town? I'm like, no, I couldn't. I couldn't. I absolutely could not. I just, it's so much a part of everything. And, I, and also for like, like my arts practice, like aside from my beadwork, like I'm really trying to learn how to tan hides. And to do that work, I, I need water. Like it's a moose hide tanning. It's a traditional activity and it, it depends on water for the process. So it's really convenient to be close to it. It's nice to have the ability to access it just right, right here so that I can continue my practice of learning how to tan those hides because that's what I'm ultimately wanting to bead onto is traditionally smoked hides opposed to commercially treated hides. Yeah, so I think like the water being here, it just is, it's constantly, yeah, it's just the interconnection between everything. We're connected to everything. <laughs> I was so excited to bring to life Jean's beadwork into an augmented reality. The image of the beaded flower sprawled out over the Great Lake was incredible. Each water system connects us and feeds us, and Winnipeg is where the two great riverways meet. These two rivers connect us in all the directions, and Negon explains the history behind the name and this space. The word Winnipeg comes from the Cree word, which people have translated to mean dirty water, but it really couldn't be anything further from the truth. There's nothing dirty about the water. I don't like the way that it's conceived of. I guess sometimes people say clouded water or they say muddy water, but it's not really any of those things. When we're talking about Winnipeg, we're talking about the algae. We're talking about the life that's in the water. And so when we're talking about Winnipeg, we're, we're not talking about the city for sure. We're talking about Lake Winnipeg, what the Cree called the algae place or the place in which the algae grows. And if you think about it, of course, the algae after the Great Lake Agassiz, which is the story I told earlier, was that's the original inhabitants of Manitoba, like the original citizens of Manitoba, the original life forms of Manitoba, the original treaty innovators of Manitoba are the algae. You know, the algae are the ones who welcomed everyone else and invited them into relationship and built a system of ecology and ties and gift giving that we can still see today. And we can still see it in the ways in which the algae is overproduced due to the, uh, the watershed of Lake Winnipeg. Everything flows in there from not just the pollution and the sewage from Winnipeg and from, you know, North Dakota, but also from all the oil sands of Alberta, which flow into Lake Winnipeg as well, as well as all of the pig fertilizer that we put on the soil and, you know, various other pollutants that people put on garbage and stuff. And all of those things, you know, the very shampoo we use to for our hair, all of those things add phosphorus to the soil which then end up in algae in Lake Winnipeg. And when the Cree, when the Cree looked at Lake Winnipeg, they knew that that was the place of algae, the place in which whatever happened, whether it was a heavy rainfall that year or whatever happened upriver or, or whatever happened in the, um, in the watershed areas, that would result in an impact on the ecology. So it's embedded within that very word that Winnipeg is talking about the algae in the water. It's talking about the, the kind of delicate balance between earth and water and everything that we put on the earth that ends up in the water. So that, you know, that teaching about taking care of the earth and taking care of our lives and making sure we don't destroy ourselves, like that's all embedded within that word Winnipeg. 
And uh, today we think about that as a model. And I always think in terms of what, what, what is the earth teaching us? The earth is always giving us lessons. And, you know, whether it be the petroforms of Manitowapi or the word Manitowabo or the word Winnipeg, what is it teaching us? Well, it's teaching us about the delicate balance of relationships in this place, that we're only a few steps away ultimately from over algae production, killing all the fish, killing our ability to feed ourselves or swim or or live in the water. So we're only a few steps ever away from that. So that's what the teaching of Winnipeg reminds us of, that we have a real delicate balance in the relationships that we have with everyone in this place, not just human, but non-human too. Yeah, like, I mean, there's a real close relationship between what's now referred to as the Red River, which comes from the south, going all the way connecting to the Great Mississippi, right? The the Great Lake that connects uh, the vein of North America, or Turtle Island. And then the connections with the Assiniboine River that goes to the west, which hooks up with Saskatchewan River and all the other ecosystems that goes all the way up to northern Alberta. You know, that those two rivers that come together that flow into Lake Winnipeg, those are, while important, and people call, refer to them as the forks, the two forks that come together to travel towards the northern direction. That's not the way Indigenous peoples talked about it. The original site of Winnipeg, which was the site in which the rivers met, it was called Nestawea, which means three points. And the key to understanding that is, is that we don't think in terms of finalities or the water is headed in a direction away from us. We think of both the ways in which we head towards one another and that we come together. And that's what Nestawea is about. Nestawea is about thinking of the three points, the three directions. Beings, non-humans all came to join in this place, you know, because the, the great lie or the stereotype of our people is that we were somehow nomads or you know, transient people or, you know, like, like what I always say about that is there's no such thing as any transient Indigenous peoples. There's no nomads. What people do is they follow the same patterns or the same places, the same stopping places. They'll often leave marks or places or objects for them to return back to. That indicates permanent. Just because you use four rooms in a house over a season, over a year, doesn't mean that you're a nomad. It means that you're using four rooms in the same house. So, I mean, our house just happens to be the world, the universe, the nature, you know. And so when we go up the river four different places, that's not being a nomad. That's that's living in a house where the river is your house. And you just keep moving from room to room. And then you go back to the same room, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, the thing I like the best about thinking about the river system in Manitoba, which is really like the first communicative methods, it's the first, you know, travel zones. It's also the first internets where knowledge is passed, where people would travel up the river and, you know, at the speed of dial-up and then, you know, travel and pass the information on. That's a that's a good joke, by the way. But anyways, so the, the rivers are about how we travel together. They're not about how we travel away from one another. And that's the teaching of water, right? The teaching of water is, is that we, water will most often flow in the direction that it wants to flow. And so when we flow, when we travel, you know, whichever direction we're coming, but we come to Nestawea, we're coming together. The water brings us together to this place. It doesn't bring us away, it brings us together. And that's why that, that teaching of three points is talking about people coming from the north, people coming from the west, and people coming from the south. And, uh, you know, there's a permanent city in this place way before non-native people arrived, uh, thousands and thousands of people. And it was only until a great sickness in 1780s that we had a you know, decimation of the population because of smallpox that, you know, resulted in the Canadians or the Northwest Mounted Police being able even to enter the area because they would never have come in here if it were not for that smallpox, smallpox epidemic.
Just as we have shared history of settler colonialism, the planet is now focused on climate change, where we are witnessing the total destruction of our fragile ecosystems. The work that we showed as part of Nui Live with Natalie and Graham and Alex really focused on the structural shifts of the environment, which many territories are facing. And Natalie provides us with some more context behind this work. When I mention deforestation, I need to put that in the context of settler colonial incursions on the land. So that when we look at the deforestation, this is a problem that's been visited upon Indigenous people from the processes of settler colonialism. And for us, that time period began to accelerate around the 1890s. So we've lived for about 130 years with the processes of deforestation really beginning to show the impacts of erosion. Those impacts began to show as early as 20 years after the worst of the deforestation, or in fact even sooner than that, maybe 10 to 15 years. And since then it's become an avalanche of sediment that comes from inland because on our unstable earth, on our unstable land, it, we're on sedimentary rock, we're on sedimentary, uh, you know, a, a land that's been fished up out of the ocean is a young land. And that young land shows in the geomorphology of the rocks and the rocks break apart and fall apart easily. So the type of erosion we have here is quite different to even other parts of the country, but certainly very different to other parts of the world. So when I engage in bringing my attention to these issues, I work both collaboratively, I work with people who live at home within our hapu lands, in particular Graham Atkins, who is a conservation ranger and a champion for the taiao, or the environment as we call it. A taiao is our word for environment. It encompasses really the world we live in. And so Graham has really opened my eyes to the extent of the problems and then more particularly to where those problems originate from. So he's been able to physically take us up into a valley called the Wai Orungamai Valley, where one of the wide open scarp faces of erosion covers many acres of land, many, many hillside gullies. And he's shown with those, when we went and looked at those gullies, it's absolutely shocking to see the impact of the erosion. But to stand underneath it, to stand underneath these hills that are, have got no covering on them whatsoever now, it feels like standing next to snow on a mountain in a whiteout that feels like an avalanche is coming, like it feels really unstable. And so it gives you a sense that the land is, how fast the land is slipping away. So when we were making the work that we brought to Nui, we worked with a cinematographer, Sam Britton. And when I say we, it was Graham Atkins who had the vision to really look at this from an aerial perspective. And Alex Monteith, who I do a lot of work with, who's a Toiwi artist here, a Toiwi meaning that she's come from Ireland and lived her life growing up here. And she's a really great filmmaker. So we work together to bring the vision of this, to fly the drone above the slopes of the eroded hillsides and then follow the journey of the sediment downstream. Because even where we are at the river mouth, some 30 kilometres or so away from where the site is, we don't get to see where that sediment's coming from because they're on farms that are behind, you know, locked gates, so up places that you just wouldn't ordinarily get an opportunity to go to visit. So we worked with Graham, who has all of the local contacts, of course, and 
wanted to bring that vision of that aerial journey. And I just wanted to say here that the aerial drone footage often has that cartographic appearance to it. You know, it's something that sits within the Western imagination. But for us as Māori, we often take the form of a bird in oratory. And the bird flies from place to place, landmark to landmark, alighting on different features in the place to explain how they're relevant to a story of our relationship with those locations. So this is something an orator will do in a formal Marae setting and speak to these different locations. So we saw the drone as taking on that same kind of role of being an orator to tell the story. So we used subtitles and used that to tell the story. And we used the form of a type of chant called a moteatea. And that chant is a customary chant that will often tell a child of the origins of the world as they know it, the cosmogonic realm of our Earth Mother, our Sky Father, Ranganui, Earth Mother is Papatuanuku, and their children. And one of their children, her name is Parafenua Mea, and she is born of the of Tani of the Great Forest and Hinitu Parimonga, the woman who is of the Great Mountains. And from her, uh, from them, uh, Parafenua Mea follows, she's the deity of alluvial waters, and so she carries sediment downstream. And so she's a landmaker, she builds land. So as she carries sediment, she's depositing it along river flats as she travels out to the ocean, where she meets her lover, Timuana Nuiakiwa which is our name for the Great Pacific Ocean. So we wanted to really embody cosmogonic thinking in the way we told the story so that the vehicle of the video is not situated so much in a Western construct of thinking about aerial photography or cinematography, but on, in a, an Indigenous construct. So that's really, that's really how we approached that. And we used it also to take it back into our Marae setting to show sections of it at meetings where we're talking about fresh water. So we have meetings where we discuss our governance over fresh water and how we're going to be handling that in relationship to Crown entities, which are like government entities and regional council entities. So we use the footage to show people there so that they, even the people who are at the river mouth who may not have seen those inland eroded slopes could actually see where our great emergency, our great problem of all of the sediment is coming from. Don't stop. Our land and waterways are our life force, and we need to protect them so they last for new generations to come. Women hold new life that has deep connection to water. And each day we get out on the land is a gift. And even with all the global chaos, we can remember that we need to greet each day as precious just as Negon imparts some beautiful words of wisdom for our final episode of season one. So every morning as a Medewan person, you're tasked with two things. So once you get up, of course, and you're ready to go and, you know, you greeted the sun in some way, which is that's probably your first task to do is to greet the sun and to offer a gift. That's what that sunrise ceremony is about. But it's to offer your tobacco to a pipe and to burn that pipe with uh, care and consideration in the community around you. And then it's to lift the water four times, and that's held by our Midday Kwe, our Midday women who do that work. I'm not a 
I'm not a water keeper or a person that leads that ceremony. That's my aunties and my sisters and my grandmothers and even my daughter. My daughter would probably be the best person to talk about that ceremony when it comes to raising the water four times. But I can tell you that the key to life is then after that water is spoken for, it ceases to be nibe, which is the word we use for water, and it becomes wabo. So those words are really intricately tied to the words that I've been sharing today, talking about Winnipeg. So nibe is in that word, Winnipeg, and then wabo, manitowabo, right? The sacredness, uh, the transition of that water from everyday water to that sacred water, that water that has life-giving properties. Another word that we use for wabo, which is a funny word, which is wabo, and that's the word we use for coffee. So it means black life water, black sacred water. And there's nothing that describes coffee better than that, right? And, you know, the power of Manitoba is that there is life in this water that has been blessed and that has been talked to and that has been spoken for. And so when we live in this place, it's a very sacred place. It's a place that we look around and we value who we are on this on these lands because we have a very sacred and important task in front of us which is to honor the water and the earth around us and when we sign treaties we should think about the land and the water when we you know live to our jobs and raise our children we should be thinking about the lands and the water and when we die our bodies return to the lands and the water and so that's where we go and we return back to our mothers and our aunties and our cousins and our grand grandparents who are all in the earth too and waiting for us and that's the key to understanding the relationship that we have with land and water in our medewin teachings we know that when you die it's not the end but a beginning of a relationship that you share with your ancestors that's really sacred and, and part of that is returning your body to the earth because then you become the closest you can become to the gifts that we've inherited to be a part of this place you literally become one with those gifts like we do in ceremony when when we dance for example we're trying to become one with the spirit of community and song and the breath and the motion of creation, the wind. But when we die, we become the most uniform with the earth. We become absolutely fully and completely one with the earth. Uh, it's like the perfect ceremony. And we never stop moving from that relationship because as the earth never stops moving, so do we. We never stop moving as well. Hmm. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say Chimigwich, Marcy, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place.